Hello, and welcome to this, the first podcast in what I intend should be an ongoing series entitled Artisian's Podcasts. My name is Colin Sanderson, and I have devoted almost 50 years to studying historical and contemporary relations between the arts and sciences. So, for this first essay in this medium, what is a wide-ranging discussion, I am delighted to have Dr. Roger Molina as our guest. Roger is Professor of Art and Technology in the School of Arts, Technology and Emerging Communication, and also Professor of Physics at the University of Texas at Dallas. At the same time, he is Executive Editor of Leonardo Publications, MIT Press, including the journal of that name, Leonardo, founded by his father, Frank Molina, in 1968. As such, Roger is one of the most knowledgeable and experienced voices on relations between the arts, science and technology. We discuss historical and current circumstances, both local and international, exhibiting some of the motives which energize people in these paradoxically specialized activities to imagine and to create new ways of doing things. I apologize for the compression artifacts within this recording. Colin, Roger, good morning. We, we have success. It sounds good. <laughs> As you know, Roger, this is uh, the first of what we intend to be a series. And uh, first of all, I couldn't be more thrilled than to have you as our first guest. And uh, let's hope all the technology works. <laughs> so, um, uh, I, you know, I have so many things that I am looking forward to discuss with you. Um, I know we've had a couple of uh, reach outs over the decades, but never really gotten to do much together. That is true. So maybe this time is the right time. Absolutely, I agree with you. Yes, I mean, again, one of the things we could discuss is, is, is why I perhaps didn't engage more closely with you and with Leonardo. Um, well, but... and, and I, no, but that, that gets into, um, in my, and as you referred to complex network science. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and how um, nodes and links interact with each other in a complex network. Yeah. And how the one when the one to one rules of behavior can um, change the whole system and um, yes. uh, you know emerging emerging behaviors of complex networks yes and, 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 yep. and yeah let me just finish the thought and I think as part of that covid nineteen is is clearly leading to a phase change in our complex system uh, some of those are very desirable some of them are very undesirable. <laughs> Um, one of the desirable things is what we're just doing right now. Um, and, and somehow I, I'm finding that I'm beginning to work with colleagues that I haven't been in touch with for 20 years. Right. And the older ones have been working at home for a long time. <laughs> and one of the world's growing resources, um, as David Pete told me before he died, uh, is retired people over the age of 65 who can work at home with no problem, have a computer, they don't need to get out of bed. <laughs> uh, and he said, this is an untapped growing resource for retired people over the age of 65. You know, obviously I'm 70, still working, but um, 
Uh, I'm certainly happy to figure out how we might make a little bit of trouble together. Good, good. Well, I'm reflecting on the fact that uh, tomorrow is Thanksgiving in the USA. So yesterday um, was. Oh, I beg your pardon. Yesterday, uh, tomorrow then is St Andrew's Day in Scotland, our national holiday. Uh -huh. Um, and as we celebrate these days on each side of the Atlantic, uh, we've agreed. I mean, we've got to be optimistic, hoping that 2021 should be positive for change. Um, but I asked you, Roger, whether you might talk a little bit about your own early formation. And I asked you particularly about your schooling, because it's the sort of thing we shared. I was also privately schooled here in Scotland. Uh, so we both went through the O-level, A-level system and so on. You kindly gave me a, a note about uh, um, others that were at, at the school you attended, uh, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Alexander. Um, I recall also that, that you left in 1968. And uh, that, of course, was the year of the Prague Spring. So again, amongst things that we could talk about is troubles of the past, the things that made us optimistic or pessimistic in the past. And uh, I had a, a little engagement with that because uh, one Dr. Vladimir Tomanyek left uh, Czechoslovakia to attend a conference in Madrid and eventually came to Scotland for a while. And his son, David, is a professor of neuroscience at uh, for, I think, uh, nanotechnology at East Lansing, Michigan. So I've been in touch with him. It just gives the Czech connection to you. So as you came out of school, you came home to Paris, presumably, the launch of Leonardo, January 68. And I'm wondering how much through your upbringing, you must have had one of the most artistic, to use my word, upbringings of anybody under your father and mother. I was thinking of other people. These are Jardine paths, you know, son of Jacob and Rita Brunowski. Uh, who, who actually rented our home one summer? Did which home was that? The the one in Paris. Right in Paris. Yeah, right. we were going right. to the south of France, and they wanted they decided to stay in Paris that that summer. Yeah. So so I mean, were you really from from very early au fait with this question of the arts and sciences and their integration? Or okay, so. Um, I, I, you know, hadn't had time to structure these remarks, um, so maybe we can view these as seeds for further discussion. Yes. Um, so one of the the things I I like to say in some of my talks is I had a very disturbed childhood. Mm -hmm. I knew my father was a famous rocket scientist, <clears throat> but when I was six and I came home from school. He was painting. Yes. That's what I thought rocket scientists did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and obviously, Samuel Morse, who invented the Morse code, earned a living as a painter. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And, and so, and then, you know, obviously, this is feed into my narrative all my life um, about hybrid individuals. Um, and I, I think I, you know, in my emails right now, I've been very influenced by this um, uh, researcher, Sarah Beth Burke, who just makes this stupid comment that we, we live in a world of experts who know more and more about less and less, and generalists who know more and more, um, less and less about more and more, but it's often the hybrids 
the break through the problem. And um, there is a correlation as Robert Bernstein. If you look at Nobel Prize winners and what they did in their spare time, they spent much more time in their arts-related avocations than their less successful colleagues who stayed in the lab all weekend. Um, and obviously Feynman is the easy example because he, um, he just spent months and months of his life playing music uh, and in the music scene in Los Angeles. And then, you know, he had to go to Caltech and come up with uh, uh, breakthroughs in science. So yeah, I grew up in a home, um, Jacob Bronowski, obviously, Bucky Flora came through. Um, and you know, the, my parents had a Thursday night chess night. Frank yes. Popper, who just died, would be there. Uh, Vic Gray, who taught my father oil painting. Um, so, I, you know, I grew up when, and, and this gets into a, a much deeper thing of my current interests, your brain is structured differently depending on who you meet when you're six years old. Uh, and I think there's a brain science a connection for early science, uh, artisans. Um, and the easy anecdote about that is, oh, I live in Texas. People are racist. Well, if you grow up in a home, all white people, and the only black people you meet are servants, then yes. in your neuronal connections, when you see a black person, oh, they're below you. You just ask them to do things. And I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that racism for people who grow up in that is a voluntary choice. Um, and then you get into the brain science that the brain has different modes of connecting the networks. Thinking first, oh, a black person, they're dangerous. thinking slow. Oh, I know I have an implicit bias. I shouldn't think that way. And so I grew up in a home where... I do. I, I I just took the Harvard implicit bias test, and yes, when I think quickly, I'm a little bit racist. But in my in the household I grew up with, there were artists, scientists, engineers, writers, poets, uh, mech mechanic refugees. You know, my parents refuge uh, welcome people. Talk about the Prague Spring. Even before the Prague Spring, they welcomed refugee in our home. Um, and and so I grew up in a home where my brain was formed where artisans was just the way you think. And yes. I, I just want to insist on the brain science part of it. So we can have all the wonderful theoretical ideas we want about how desirable it is to connect different ways of knowing. But if your brain formed in a very monocultural, mono, um, my, my father's a lawyer and the, their only friends are lawyers. Well, yeah. surprise, surprise, people grow up not understanding their different ways of knowing. They're all good, depending on the context. Well, responding to that, uh, I, I would I recall that uh, I've been in Dallas at one time, uh, and that was for the opening of the big two-year touring retrospective of okay. Nan Garbage. And my wife and I then stayed with... Uh, a friend of my mother's from school days who was married to a U.S. Air Force colonel. And I'm not going to name names, but we, we witnessed the kind of um, difficulty they had. I mean, they were civilized people, but... Educated. Uh, the question, yes, the question about uh, Mexicans coming across the border. We, we, know that the, we know the difficulties of all these things. Um, 
but yes, on the neuroscience side, the thing that's on my mind is uh, the book by Ian McGilchrist, uh, The Master and His Emissary. Yep, I have read it. And I've I tried to contract that uh, Ian McGilchrist. Well, he's, of course, on the question that the left brain notices the detail. The right-hand side of the brain uh, tends to be integrative and metaphorical and all the rest of it. But uh, he then goes, tries to translate, tries to interpret the whole of history, the whole of Western history, uh, in terms of uh, the determination of event by the rise and fall of the domination of the left or right brain. He was told not to go into um, left-right brain stuff. We have here in Scotland, Colwyn Trevathan, that worked, worked with uh, Roger Sperry. Um, but uh, but he, he went ahead with it, and it's making a lot of noise. But I absolutely agree with you that neuroscience, it's, it's not a panacea for anything, but it gives us a little window into um, yeah, and, and how that, we are. And that gets into it. Let me just, you know... Um, Obviously, I, I've read all the left brain, right brain literature, and I think it gets into a different issue um, where we think anatomy controls behavior and function, the shape of something. Mm -hmm. now, why do human beings make things that are symmetrical? I'm looking at a tree; it's not symmetrical. You know, why do you need to be symmetrical to be stable? Um, yeah. And you know, Einstein famously said, the shape of our ideas is as independent of the shape of our body as our clothes are. Mm -hmm. Why would you make a shirt with three arms? Makes no sense. You only have two. And so his argument was that human thinking is shaped, over-shaped by things like anatomy, which have nothing to do with what you're trying to understand. The anatomy of the observer doesn't control the nature of something. Um, and you know, it gets very complicated, actually. Um, uh, and I, you know, I'm, uh, my main background is in the physical sciences, not in the brain sciences, even though the brains are physical, of course. Um, but the left brain, right brain thing, I think came out of hundreds of years of doctors trying to figure out, oh, the brain it has two sides. What does this side do? What does that side do? Well, I think and, and I've worked on one project that uses fMRI data. The left and right brain are hyper-interconnected. So the anatomy gives you a false dichotomy. Uh, Indeed. And may, may, I, may I ask you one gloss on your symmetry of le uh, left and right? Yep. Uh, and that is the case of Ernst Mach. Do you know, as, as we all do, you know, his, his first uh, image of a, a speeding bullet, yeah. um, high-speed photography. But, uh, but he really was the key to my eventually, as far as I was concerned, understanding Naum Gabo. And, of course, one of the things that Mark uh, was, because he was in perception, and he was saying that perceptive space, as opposed to geometrical space, was not um, you know uniform form in all directions that we were biased towards the front and back and I think I mean I don't disagree with your your, your statement you know about the, um, the centrality of left and right uh, but this this question that we are perceptually because we look forward and behind us is invisible to us uh, without a periscope or whatever yeah I just don't and that, you know, um, I, you know it, it gets so. I, th I think you know the the other thing as a as a humiliated astronomer uh, that has helped discover that ninety five cent of the universe not emits signals we can detect. Um, 
I think we're dealing with the same kind of projection of ourselves on the world around us. And uh, I like that um, thing you, you said, Mark talked about perceptual space versus physical space. And, you know, the, the maybe it's just amazing that we can use methods to figure out that when you throw a ball, how far it's going to go. I mean, give me a break. Um, and clearly, the scientific works very well for that. Now, but if you're talking about emotional space, it, it's kind of a different configuration. You know, mm -hmm. oh, I see something that reminds me of Houndal in my case. Um, and that, you know, in my case, um, we created a, a rock sock, rocketry society at Houndal. And stole chemicals from the, the Aundel chemistry lab. Uh, Raiden was the chemistry professor. And we made zinc sulfur detonators. And we mixed <laughs> sugar and potassium perchlorate. And Stephen Temple, oh, we could make alcohol too instead of making rocket fuel. <laughs> uh, and so. You know, that's something now we, we just rotated back to, yes, my upbringing, um, I, I was very confused compared to my peers. Um, because, yes. you know, we just lived in a group, ne never mind my father's political problems. Uh, Lord Roll was one of his best friends. He'd been the labor attache in the French embassy and the English embassy in London. But when my father's name got put on the blacklist, they moved Lord Roll to a different embassy <laughs> because people too friendly with suspected communists. Yeah. And no, I mean so yeah, no, I yeah. grew up in the in the in that kind of environment where having to justify it, you know, has taken me many decades to understand why it doesn't make sense to so many people. I, I'm glad, well, I'm interested to hear that, that, uh, yes, how long it's taken to understand. And I'm so grateful, as I've said to you, that uh, um, you and the family have allowed Fraser MacDonald to write up the story. Um, well, it, and it's one of, one of the stories, and, the, and that gets into a, a different thing. I just, that history is cruel. Uh, it's written by the settlers, not by the migrants. And yeah. artisans is a bunch of migrants, you know. We, we well, move from the scientific method to the artistic method to the some musical method. Uh, so we migrate intellectually, and historians don't really are not interested. They're what what you know, they're all these sort of nice words that you're a polymath, you're good at nothing. <laughs> um, no, we a lot of people are you know, combine different ways of knowing and solve problems that you cannot do just using one method. Well, indeed. And, and one thing that I have expressed to you in our prior correspondence is uh, um, here in my own native land of Scotland, wanting to increase people's appreciation. I mean, people in academia, in uh, places of power and influence, whether it's uh, business and commerce or whatever, to first of all, understand, but then appreciate that there is this thing, which you're today calling the hybrid, uh, and, and the hybrid has its own particular um, characteristics. I, I also call them amphibians. I like that one, yes. Except, except these um, amphibians can walk, swim, and fly. <laughs> yes, indeed. So let me, let me turn to your current position, Roger. Uh, you, you are... Um, 
Professor of Art and Technology, Professor of Physics at UT Dallas, and your executive still executive editor of Leonardo Publications. Um, I'm going to bring up the as relationship. So I'm talking to you, Roger, as Roger, Roger Molina, as Professor of Art and Technology, as Professor of Physics. So this is the qua relationship, to which I related. We might, we might get onto that or we might not. But you're also currently uh, interested in uh, this experimental program you have in publishing and curating. And I took a look at that. Uh, just over the last couple of days. Um, I didn't necessarily go very far into it, but I listened to the 18-minute 18, 18 uh, recording you had, I think, with five yeah. students. Uh, one was on open access, one was about taking your phone into open parks and so on. Um, the one that I uh, landed on was uh, Yvonne yeah. Hina, so Virtual Africa. And of course, the, the, the recording I was listening to was 2016. So I expect all these uh, uh, postgraduate students have, have uh, graduated and gone yeah. on to other things. But again, referring back to lives, Black Lives Matter, um, I have to own up to the fact that my own father was a, um, a son of the empire, so to speak, and brought up in Malawi in Africa, or Nyasaland as it was then. So I have been taking an interest, as anybody responsible has, over this summer. And I may say that one of the, the, the very first black professor appointed in Scotland is one, he's now actually Professor Sir Geoffrey Palmer. And his story is quite incredible, coming from the Caribbean at age 14 and becoming a world expert on brewing. And he now, in his retirement, likes going through the supermarkets here and saying, oh, that's my student, and, you know, et cetera, all from around the world. So, yes, maybe you want to say more about this experimental publishing curation seminar you, you've been running. Okay, so I, and I, um, I'm going to be running it again next semester. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I have a lot to say about it. But, you know, the first thing, uh, and... Um, Okay, let, let me just refer to James Leach again, as I did in the email this morning, um, who's an anthropologist who studies people in Papua New Guinea, but he was funded by the British Arts Council to study uh, art science collaborations using ethnographic methods. And one of the simple things he noticed was when you bring artists and scientists together, they don't mean the same thing by the same word. You know, mm -hmm. we physicists all agree that gravity means gravity. <laughs> well, the writer, gravity means seriousness. <laughs> uh, uh, and often this huge, unproductive um, miscommunication, because you don't take the time to say, okay, what do you mean by gravity? And, you know, if you're going to work with someone, if you want to understand what they're saying, you better use words that both of you interpret sim in similar ways. Um, I'm not a linguist. I'm not into uh, semiotics and all that enough. But um, and you know, coming back to Ivantina, and yeah, yes, he has an amazingly turbulent life story. Um, let me just give you one vignette. Um, so. He was flying back from Paris, um, where he he was doing some work in Marseille. I first met him in Marseille when he was a master's student in theater study. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. Performance studies, or whatever you call it, depending on the university. 
and his he had to change planes in I don't know Sweden or somewhere. He he was on a cheap flight. Then he landed at Chicago at twelve at night, uh, eleven p.m. And the immigration officer took one look at him. And he says, um, "We're going to have to keep you until the morning." And they basically put, incarcerated him. And you know, he called me in the middle of the night, saying, "Oh, what am I going to do?" They put me in jail in Chicago, immigration jail. And you know, after you know, I I had to you know write a letter in the middle of the night and get him out of there. And what had happened was. He changed planes, and I think it was Stockholm. Someone in the database just put a little check mark. This person's I verified. Now, here was a 20-year-old with dreadlock who claimed to be a PhD student in Texas. That was just, you know, that was odd. And since he landed at 11 p.m., you know, they, you know, they could have called the university and verified he was enrolled, but the university was closed. <laughs> and so they just locked him up in a jail for a night because nobody could believe that this black kid from Cameroon had done a, was doing a PhD at UT Dallas. And anyway, I'm getting emotional about it because he was emotional about it. Um, and, you know, it is amazing how our implicit biases end up in databases, <laughs> and you know, it, it, and I'm sure the 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 uh, immigration officer in, in Sweden didn't mean anything, and he just checked a box in a you know in a column and said you know verify you know he says he's a PhD student in Texas, uh, but he's from Cameroons and has dreadlock, you know that something doesn't fit here, and um, but then. So what does he do for his PhD? We get into a discussion on artificial life. I was on the jury of the Telefonica Vida competition, whilst that lasted. And as you know, the A-Life community, you know, the question, okay, so uh, uh, Yvonne's research statement for his PhD was, our concept of life is changing. The purpose of theater is to put life on stage. How do we put a life, genetically engineered life on stage. And then, you know, he then, you know, he knows more about biotechnology than any theater professional on the planet. And so here's a look about hybridity, right? He, you know, he had concepts on the performing arts from his African background, from his French background, from his uh, Texas background. Talk about different ways of performing. You don't perform the same in Cameroon as you did in Marseille as you do in Dallas. I'm sorry. Um, there's no good, there's no better, no best method for theater. It's so culturally embedded, locally specific. Let's not get into mass media. So let, let me just then cut, uh, come around the circle back to experimental publishing and curating. I came up with this idea when. We wrote a paper with Cassini Nazir on the history of Leonardo and its use of emerging technologies. So yes, in 1968, when my dad started, it was all typed on a typewriter. It wasn't even electronic. When I took it over in 1982, the first desktop publishing appeared. And we just did, started using it in San Francisco in 1985, 10 years ahead of the publishing industry. Then, yes. 
and you know, it all came from our authors. The artists were ahead of their time using emerging technology. And yeah, we did a CDI publication. I still have the CDI here, but nobody has a CDI reader. Uh, and yes, we published in hypertext. Huh, I don't know what happened to that uh, publication. And so that's where we got into this idea of experimental publishing. We're working with a community of practice that is artificient, and they, one of the things they're really good at is bringing emerging technologies to trying them out in their context. If it works, they're going to use it. And they're bigger risk takers than scientists or engineers in terms of using emerging technology. You know, I, 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 can, I can document that statement. Um, and then, it, you know, then we got into, ha, huh, when I arrived in Dallas, ha, huh, our students are listening to podcasts. They don't read journal articles. <laughs> so we started the Creative Disturbance podcast platform that Ivan Tina is running. And so what does he do? He interviews 12 women curators in Africa discussing curation in the African context. Uh, and so the podcast then, well, why don't, why, why don't scholarly publications just routinely publish podcasts? Well, now today it's self-evident, right? We're on Anchor. Um, and so the community of practice of Leonardo, yeah, Joe Davis, goddammit, does genetically engineered art, uh, as does Eduardo Cut. Um, and so this whole idea of experimental publishing was we are working with a community of people that we publish in different ways. And then we stumbled onto a stupid thing that I had Indian students and Chinese students. And they said, oh, can we publish a podcast in our mother tongue? I said, yeah, go ahead and do it. It turned out to be so easy to do multilingual podcast publishing that it was frightening. We've now published in 16 languages podcasts. And then we ran into a thought-changing event. Uh, I, I was working and teaching with people in Manizales, Colombia, in Latin America. And the master student came to me and said, I want to publish a podcast in my indigenous language. Okay, good. Go ahead and do it. But he said, I, I've run into a problem. We don't even have words for art and science in our language. And we don't divide knowledge yes. up that way. And well, I mean, how yes. can you this be the, the to think that everybody divides knowledge into a tree of knowledge where there's a branch of arts and a branch of science and engineering and medicine? And he said, look, in, in my culture, we just we have no way of thinking that way because we don't divide knowledge up into those subunits. And, you know, that gets into what you're trying to do with artisans. Um, get into different ways of knowing the complexity of the world that we're living And I, I'm not saying that indigenous knowledge well, is particularly yeah. valuable um, because there are 600, 6,000 indigenous languages with different concepts. Um, this idea that English is the language of science, well, to get that, it's now Mandarin. More articles are published in Mandarin English. Um, so, you know, this whole thing of how the way we teach people to, to speak, <laughs> it's not only the neural, neuronal connections that get embedded when you're six years old, but it's the conceptual connections. 
You know, is our Indeed. connected to science or not? Well, it's not just a book reading problem. Um, and um, so the experiment publishing is just let's step back. You know, Leonardo is profitable, which is absurd doing print and books and et cetera. Um, but how do you document your work for other people? And uh, I haven't sent you my sort of manifesto. So one of them is how do you document your work when the audience is extraterrestrial? Carl Sagan was just stupid. I mean, he was a great scientist. I mean, why send a disc of, mu of terrestrial music to extraterrestrial? Well, you're bringing me back to Joe Davis, of course. And uh, I don't know if you're aware, but I actually met Joe when I was one of three of the artists I met at the Center of Advanced Visual Studies when I was way back. It was, uh, unfortunately, I never, never met uh, yeah, no, I, I do it very well. But, um, Actually, let me just yeah, let me give a, you a, a Kepesh have... anecdote. Um, so I, indeed, I arrived at MIT in the fall of 1968, and it was in the middle of the Vietnam War. Uh, I was a student. I didn't have to go into the army. Um, you know, so I was parachuted from Aldel in England, talk about a protected ecosystem, into, uh, and what happened one day was uh, one of the graduates of MIT was conscripted into the army, and he, he was a conscientious objector. So with a sleeping bag, he was put in our student center, and we all slept in sleeping bags at night with him to keep the police out who wanted to arrest him. It turned out that about 300 student union student center was Georgie Kepes Center for Advanced Visual Study. So what did Kepes do? Right. He welcomed us. If we wanted to go to the toilet, we could use the toilet of the Center for Advanced Visual Studies. For some reason, they had a shower, I think. Um, and so, the, you know, there's Kepes, who's gone through hell from Nazi Germany he actually taught here at University of North Texas down the road for a couple of years before he got at MIT. And so Kepesh was one of the people who befriended the politically active students. And, you know, I can tell you the other faculty that were friendly. No surprise, Noam Chomsky. No surprise, yes. Philip Morris. No surprise, Jerome Letvin. I mean, here I am, uh, I, 50 years later, remembering the few faculty members that protected the student from the police and yeah i, I, mean, you know. yeah. I can see i can see how your growing understanding of your of what your father had been through your father and mother um i mean he started leonardo with such an international um editorial well, board you know, he had a, the, the dream of that generation that the united nation the united nations was going to bring peace love and rock and roll and and so yeah, the editorial board had to be include people from everywhere on the planet. And you know, the Chinese mm -hmm. and, and I haven't had time to research it, nor did Fraser, the Chinese Academy of Art appointed a Communist Party member to the Leonardo editorial board. And we had a Russian one. <laughs> and we had a Mexican one. And <laughs> um, you also had, you also had and John, John Holloway. Holloway, who I obviously, as a teenager, I got to know very well. Reg Gadney, that uh, group. Did you? Um, and, you know, and that gets into, 
you know, the Nazi Holocaust. Um, one of the things I, in the book review I sent you, uh, I learned that when Albert Einstein tried to carve in America, he was actually offered one in India and turned it down and accepted the one at Princeton. <laughs> and my father actually was offered a job in India when he lost a job at UNESCO in India, in Bangalore, and he turned it down and started Leonardo <laughs> uh, because he was independently wealthy with his rocket company. Um, and so yeah, I grew up in a world that you know just didn't doesn't make sense to most people. So yeah, Yuri Gagarin was yeah. in Oliving room. What's the big deal? Uh, my father rode donkeys with Werner von Braun on one donkey, Arthur Clarke on another donkey, my dad on another donkey, a set of Vladimir on another donkey. Yeah. They were astronautics congress in, in Greenland. So you know we forget how traumatic the Second yeah. World War was. I was just going to say, Roger, that uh, amongst the material I have here in Edinburgh is a large amount of books from the Library of the Late Medical Scientist here, an expert in histamine. And he was a member of ALSOS, A-L-S-O-S, uh, which you'll know was the uh, joint British-American um, project to get scientists and medical scientists yeah. out of Europe. I, I'm not familiar um, with that story. So again, you make, you make me think of that. Um, Werner von Braun, etc. Um, I mean, they were involved in getting Niels Bohr out and Heisenberg and, and all the rest of it. Uh, and we know the results of that. But um, yes, they, let me let me just uh, gather my thoughts. Okay, okay. Let me just um, uh, respond to that. Helping get sinus out of Europe. Um, so you've just you know, walk into a, 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 an analogy. So how do you get our community out of the world during the pandemic? Because getting them out of Europe will not help. And this morning, yeah. I had a little email from Vicky Sowry. You know Vicky? Okay, I so she's one of the people who really ran <clears throat> ANAT, the Australian Network for Technology. She hey. was a featured, spe uh, featured speaker at our 40th anniversary in Prague. No accident. And I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna get emotional. She sent me a little Hi, Roger. I remember so fondly our time in Prague and how you welcomed me coming out of nowhere, the Australia outback and how we've continued to work together over the, over the decades. I'm sorry to tell you that ANAT had to lay me off and I don't have a job anymore. So I'm driving into the outback mm. to where the roads end to try and figure out what to do next. Hmm. So here is a COVID-19 refugee. It's not as easy as getting them out of Europe. And No. I and it leads me on to think about, again, this question I think that I raised in our exchange about careers and uh, whether there is a career yet in artisans or whatever. Um, I mean, yes, of course, one can graduate people and they can, you know, develop projects and get a grant. But let, let, me, let me return to Dallas because, again, the poignant thing that um, I only learned over the last couple of days was that, of course, you lost very sadly, your major patron, um, Edith O'Donnell, just yep. died just, what, two weeks ago. And um, 
So I wanted to ask you, uh, apart from what you are doing uh, in the arts and technology building, how big is this thing building in Dallas? Because you, you, you've got, I mean, we, we, I was privileged to have Carissa Terranova over um, from the art history department, again, sponsored by or um, funded with a 70 million grant by Edith O'Donnell. And then there's the SPN Gallery. I noticed some artistian things there. So, you know, is we've known about MIT and the Center for Advanced Visual Studies and other places, but um, sounds as if Dallas is becoming a Okay, I, 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 I would frame your query a, a little bit differently, but um, so l let me just begin with the Edith O'Donnell. So, you know, when I, I was being forced to retire in France at 65. So uh, like a lot of academics who were forced to retire and get a nice retirement income, they moved to America or China now uh, to keep working, like Roy Ascot in Shanghai, who's in this wonderful private university in, in Shanghai. Um, I learned, you know, I did a lot of due diligence because people, you know, I was living in Marseille, director of the observatory, and you know, I said, oh, I'm being interviewed in Dallas, and people would look at me, God, how could you imagine working in that end of the world? <laughs> and so, you know, they, they flew me yeah. to, for interviews three times. Um, I did meet, meet Edith and Peter O'Donnell. Uh, he was in, you know, they were both absurdly rich from their parents. Um, but she's the one that was an art student when she met Peter. She went to the University of Texas at Austin. And she was sort of the driver in that couple. So all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's a, a couple an artist and a, a woman who had a artistic training, who kind of lived artisan. Um, they funded mm -hmm. uh, data visualization facilities um, at MIT, I think. And I, what, uh, what do artists do? Where they make sense of data? I think <laughs> so. Let's fund them to do data visualization. Um, and you know, it was. You know, only later that I discovered that the state of Texas only provides 10% of the budget diversity. So basically, mm -hmm. we just get the logo. In Marseille, 90% of the budget came from the state. Mm -hmm. So how does the university survive? And this is where you tuition. So our students end up with tens of thousands of student debt after they go to college. Yes. What happened to the 19th century vision of public education? <laughs> yeah, I was in the 19th century when primary schools were started, blah, 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 blah because we need educated factory workers. Um, philanthropic donors, the university founded by the Texas Instruments founders who got to be billionaires, they gave the land, which is now worth millions, and they gave money... For you know, and then as the, the old people died, it was the widows who kept giving the money to the university. And, yes. you know, one of my friends, when I said I wanted to thank Edith O'Donnell for what she made possible, he said, look, she's an evil person. You know, they made their money on fossil fuels <laughs> and cotton, two industries that are racist, exploitative, and you want me to thank them for the money they gave us? Okay. Let's not get into how every social structure doesn't always 
follow its ideals. Um, mm -hmm. The other source of money is corporate funding. Well, in my university in Marseille, then you know, I think in ten years I got two contracts with companies. Here in Dallas, the companies are knocking on our doors saying, "Do you have any students? Uh, we'd like to hire them for the summer." And when I got here, the terminology was, "You know, your engineering school doesn't know how to train engineers. They get a degree, we put them in the company, and they just have no idea what to do." And the phraseology at that time was T-shaped. We need people who, yes, have deep expertise in engineering, but they also need to know what marketing means and how the marketing industry works. They also need to know about um, health and safety regulations and enough medical science to know how a technology might affect people's health. And the companies were saying, you're training the yeah. wrong kind of engineers. Yeah. We need engineers that have multiple disciplinary backgrounds. Not quite early science, but yes. it's pretty close. And then uh, five years later, IBM came up with this term white-collar worker. You train engineers that just want to be engineers and microelectronics for the rest of their career. I'm sorry. You may get hired as a blue-collar worker. Then that job disappears. You need to learn new professions and become a white collar worker. And then maybe that job would disappear and then you become a blue collar worker. And suddenly it's, oh, multidisciplinary trained people are more agile in an economy where many jobs are getting automated. So yeah, we need computer scientists, but it's not the same computer science today than when they got their education. And so yes. this is an analogous yes. narrative. Yeah, I have this in fact. And I had this in Spain yeah. from the former chairman of BP, and I know that uh, it is not to be mentioned in Texas or the, the Gulf, but um, this is back in the 90s. And uh, he at that time said, you know, BP, yes, we need we need really leading scientists, engineers, technologists, but we, we also, and I don't like the use of the retrospective term, he said yeah, we I'm also okay. need renaissance yeah. men. There's, because, because, again, things change. And if you're just specialized in one thing, you'll be out of job. Yeah. yeah but we talk about that. retraining. Okay, hold on a but, second. Um, retraining. The other thing. Lifelong learning and all the blah, blah, blah. So, um, you know, the head, the Indian president of Infosys, uh, with a, this uh, editorial by Tom Friedman in the New York Times, seeded this very stupid idea. He said, the pandemic is a great occasion to close down four year universities. He says, we now live in a world where we want people to yearn, learn, and earn all their life. Idea of going to college for four years in America is a stupid idea. How do we build an educational system? And then he came up with a logical metaphor where there are companies, learning centers, um, all interconnected so you can move around and, and the yearning part, I love the word yearning. It's not curiosity. <laughs> it's I want to have a better standard of living. I'm yearning to help my children uh, do something. Yes, curiosity is part of yearning. And to address your yearning, you have to learn new things. You know, we don't train parents to raise children. Huh, why not? 
Don't we know there are better ways and bad ways of raising children? Okay, let me just leave that floating there. And so the head of Infosys basically said, this is the end of four year colleges as we know them. We need, need to restructure the system between companies, educationally centered units, creative centered units, in an ecology, one of my favorite words from something that clicked during the, the seed uh, report we did for the National Science Foundation. Yes. And so this is where we, we get into trouble. Well, now, Roger, so looking... Renaissance, polymath, earthy science, earth science and technology, um, white collar workers, T-shaped people, you know, we're still struggling to rethink what we mean. And so when you ask me, do the people coming out of our research lab get jobs? Yeah. So let me give you one stupid example. So I had an Indian student who did a master's degree, um, and he was applying for jobs. And as you know, in the US, a foreign student gets expelled if they don't find a job. And he was interviewing with, I forget the name of the company in uh, Boston. And he was an engineering computer science major, but he, he was also just fascinated with computer games. So the weekend before his interview, what did the stupid guy do? He put his resume in a computer game. So you could enter the computer game, you could visit his high school, you could see pictures of where he grew up, you could meet and shoot his parents. Uh, <laughs> um, and the interviewer said, holy shit, you've translated your education in computer science in talk about experimental publishing. Publishing your resume is a computer game. And That's he was hired on the spot because he was a hybrid. Yeah, he was a computer scientist. In our lab, he'd been you know, doing computer games and stuff um, like all good 18-year-olds do today. And he connected them in his mind. <laughs> um, and, you know, is that Renaissance? Is that RT science? Um, let me not get into how computer games are one of the best technologies that scientists don't know how to use. Let me give you another anecdote. So when I arrived, what did I know about animation? Well, just, just hold you there. Yep. Can I just hold you there, Roger? Um, on the okay. time, on the clock, we have four minutes. Um, and and I, I, I believe that Anchor might just stop at 60 minutes. Then it might not. It might carry on for another hour. But I was thinking we probably ought to so start me, to wrap up. Go, go on with your session. More than three, three minutes and 20 seconds. Um, so, you know, I got to know the animation professors and the... Uh, gaming professors, and I learned, oh, procedural animation. Oh, who was that? Uh, her name's Midori Kitagawa. She was, she's a Korean American. And I was in the physics department, and Mike Hesden, who's a physics professor, contacts me out of the blue, and he says, Roger, I, I know you also teach in technology. Um, do you have any students? My article just got accepted in Physics Today or something, or some prestigious, and I need a cover illustration. Okay, so we've trained a lot of students, when people come to artists for decoration, you kick them out of the room. 
Um, you know, what did Humboldt hire? 20 artists to go down to South America to map uh, South America. Um, so, but then I was stupid. I said, okay, we'll do that, but let's start talking between the animation professor and the physics professor who never normally talk to each other because we live in silos in universities. And his article was the first closed mathematical form describing what happens to orbiting black holes. So Midori said, oh, okay. I have a student. We can put those equations into our animation engine, and we can gamify it, whatever the hell that means. And so she and her student built a software for Mike Gesson where you could go to the computer screen. It's called Vigor, if you want to look it up, V-I-D-O-R, Vigor and Black Hole. And you can actually play with it online. Basically, you can tweak mass of the black hole and see how long it takes them to merge. You can change the inclination of one of them or the um, so. And Mike has done, holy shit, I can do physics with your animation engine. <laughs> Software functions, okay. I mean, they're better than a lot of scientific software for theoretical mathematics and physics. Now, I don't want to exaggerate, but and suddenly Mike Kesden and Midori got a $3 million grant from the National Science Foundation, thanks to my incitation, to gamify, I think it's the teaching of chemistry. <laughs> and, and anyway, so, so others' jobs. Well, it's not as simple, and that gets into what I said to uh, your colleague, um, what's her name? Bianca. Uh, Bianca, Bianca Hofer. You know, until I got to Dallas, I had at least three resumes, because to get promoted in France, if my work with Leonardo had no merit, no, no influence on my getting promoted, so I hid all my work in the art world in my scientific resume. Because when I applied to Dallas, I put all my resumes together, publishing, which is different than a lot of things and so on. And so other jobs for earthy science professionals. Well, I think we need to think different. There are certainly jobs for people who combine different disciplines together in an agile manner. You know, this week it's, you know, how do we, okay, I'm going to have to finish on a final anecdote. And I know I'm out of time. That's okay. It seems to have not uh, cut off. Okay, so, so please the, the continue, but we will round up. Is I'm working with Ayan, whose family are refugees from South Sudan. And in February, racism and xenophobia just went haywire in our country. So we came up with this simple project. Mm -hmm. Every culture has failed to eliminate racism. Let's try quantum mechanics. Are atoms racist? Okay. No. Is the water molecule racist? No. Are viruses racist? COVID-19 isn't. Other viruses are racist. Ha! We've got to shrink people to the size of water molecules, and that will eliminate racism in our society. And we're now working on a children's book, 12-year-olds uh, introducing concepts of quantum mechanics and make you think about they might be applicable to social problems. Well, that's uh, that's a good anecdote to to maybe wrap up with. Um, I'm, but although I'm thinking of the, the work of Heather Barnett uh, yep. um, uh, on slime mold and how working on slime mold, you know, they have carried this across to 
um, social and yep. urban and even transport problems. It's, uh, it's fascinating how you can jump, can jump yeah. the categories. I think we're asking the question um, wrong. So, are there well, jobs for people with this resume? <laughs> no, there are certainly jobs for people who have an agility between disciplines and a background in, in several of them. Um, that there are certainly jobs now. You know, my computer science student who got a job because of his gaming resume. Um, no, there are not jobs listed. We're looking for people who know how to put resumes in gaming engines. <laughs> uh, well, of course, I mean, I, I think we would agree that, that, I mean, this is where, you know, simply certificates from universities, so much goes into the, the appraisal of a student by somebody like yourself that knows them that has seen them solving problems and, and knows how agile they might be. Um, so and that's more where to I become optimistic about the COVID-19 uh, move to online work. Now, I've been online since computers existed. Um, mm -hmm. At Aundel, actually, uh, they took us down to the IBM and we had punch cards and we did programming as 17-year-olds at IBM when I was at Aundel. Uh, well, that gets into a different discussion. But, you know, I'm working with about 30 students and colleagues, and some of them are thriving online. Some of them are not. But I, I think, it, you know, it does help us rethink um, how contemporary technologies that allow you and I to talk for an hour on a Sunday <laughs> at no cost except your subscription. Well, I, you know, I would never fly to Scotland to talk to you for an hour, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Well, well, maybe well, you will okay, someday. Maybe you question. will someday. <laughs> when I was at MIT, I spent the summer in Loch Ness. Because the professor at MIT, and you'll, you'll oh, know his you? name, and I can't remember it right now, uh, high-speed photography, MIT. Anyway, so he hired some students. Harold Benjamin? Yes, yes. Uh, so How he hired us go to go camping on the edge of Loch Ness to observe phenomena on the water. And he was doing underwater imaging to mm -hmm. see if some of the waves and things, the repeatable shapes that look like Loch Ness monsters. <laughs> and um, my girlfriend at the time, I will not give you her name, so we slept in the sleep, same sleeping bag on the edge of Loch Ness. Um, and after you smoke enough marijuana, you do see monsters in Loch Ness. <laughs> and if you're not careful, your sleeping bag rolls down the hillside. Uh, so yeah, that was a one. But, it, but again, what Doc Edgerton wanted was observers and noticers. What do artists and scientists do? They spend a reasonable yeah. amount of time observing. But the key thing is they notice things that other people don't. Yep. Well, indeed, and the prepared mind and all that stuff. Yeah. Yes, well. Well, look, Roger, as I say, thank you very much for your time and the enthusiasm of your talk. And um, goodness knows if and when we will meet at last. But um, again, I'm just going to say at the end of this, uh, this tape that I'm slightly concerned about the quality of the recording on 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 this software and with I our simple mobile those extraordinary that we have to say expensive anyway so uh what should we say in 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 summary um 
Yes. The future uh, is interesting. Forgive me, but how old are you? 69. I'm just two years younger than you. So 1952, I was born. Growing untapped resource of talent on the planet, people who are past their retirement age and can mm -hmm. step back and do things differently than someone who's trying to find their second job. And uh, so I, I would be very interested in continuing to see if there might be some sweet spot where we could do something together. Well, very good. Let's hope for that. I have to tell you that, uh, um, you know, whether, whether I can retain the library, we, we haven't talked about, you know, digital versus... Leonardo just um, made a decision to keep um, doing it because university libraries are closing. <laughs> good. But everybody's garage is where the key publications yes. are. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yes, I still believe in papyrus. Papyrus on on the idea of iterative publications that that you can update them in a formal manner every six months or whenever you have a new idea, uh, and then with print on demand, you can have the latest version on Amazon within days. Indeed. Well, let me wish you a happy Thanksgiving weekend. You said it was, the day was yesterday, and uh, and we didn't discuss Amble yet. Well, we didn't talk about yeah. Alexander and uh, okay. that stuff, but um, time. Bye bye. Thank you, and all the best. Well, my sincere thanks to Roger. After some forty years of sporadic contact between us, I am extremely grateful to him for having been my first guest on this new series with me. At this time of multiple severe global challenges including growing doubts about technologism. We've ended on a note of optimism with regard to younger people's ability first to become agile through being multidisciplinary or hybrid, both intellectually and geographically, and hence their potential to thrive in the online world, the rapid expansion of which has been ever more stimulated by the current global pandemic. In conclusion, we both hope that in the future we might find opportunities for further mutual engagement within the Artisiant ecosystem. So thank you, Roger. I look forward to feedback on our discussion, and otherwise, until next time, farewell. <laughs>